Now, we come to chapter 11, and we've come to the second major division. Up to this point, we've been dealing with the doctrine, and we've had a lot that's practical. I think you'll agree with that. But now we come to the practical implications. Christ brings us better benefits and duties, and we're going to see them now put down for us, and first of all, he's going to give what has been called the faith chapter of the Bible. Some call it the catalog of the heroes of faith. Personally, I don't care for that. I do not think that's the thought at all. The thought in this chapter is what faith has done in the past, in the lives of men and women, in all ages, under all circumstances, in every strata of society, that men have been able to live by faith. Now, we're going to see how it worked in the lives of men and women of the past, and their encouragement for us today. If they could do it, we can do it. Oh, not because we have any ability. Tell the truth, these folks didn't have any ability either. They were weak men and women, human beings, just like you and I are. But by faith, they did these things for God, and they were able to live under all kinds of circumstances. Oh, my Christian friend, let's enter this chapter with our head held high. We're going to be walking again in the tall coin. Now, it's so easy to even make the Christian life a serious of rules, one of the reasons that so many people like to get under the Sermon on the Mount or the Ten Commandments is because men love rules and regulation, and they think it's easy to obey rules. It seems simple. I'll be very frank with you. When I go to a new place and I'm driving, I always ask the party to tell me how to get there. And they generally write it out. You turn here, left, and you go so many blocks and you turn right. I like it like that because it's easy to follow. Life is like that for a great many folk. But now we're going to find that these people who went by faith went a different route altogether. And that's the way God actually wants us to go today. Unbelief, we're going to see as probably, as we've already seen for that matter, the worst sin that anyone can commit. God has a remedy for every sin but the state of unbelief. Now, that doesn't mean there is an unpardonable sin. There's no act you could do today that God wouldn't forgive you tomorrow. But if you're in a state of unbelief today and in a state of unbelief tomorrow, God has no remedy for that, of course, at all. Now, first of all, we have a definition of faith, and it's a scriptural definition. So let's stay with that for just a moment here today. He says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now, that is a scriptural definition of faith. 
And the reason now that he's turning to this very important word is because God today has just two ways. And you can come to him by works. And somebody says, I didn't know you believed that. Yes, if you can present perfection, God will accept you. But so far, nobody's been able to make it. Adam didn't. And no one else has ever made it. Abraham didn't. And David didn't. And Daniel didn't. None of them made it by being perfect. And therefore, that way is not a very satisfactory way. Yet there are a great many people that are coming along, hobbling along that route, and they're not getting very new. Now, the only other alternative that is open to us today here is faith. We come to God by faith. Now, somebody says, well, that's not a very satisfactory way at all. Well, let me say this before we get to this definition. You remember the little girl was asked, what is faith? And she came up with a good answer. She says, well, faith is believing what you know ain't so. And a great many people think that it's that. There are those that think it's a leap in the dark, therefore. It's a sort of a gamble. It's an uncertainty. Well, if it's that to you, then, friends, you do not have faith. Faith here, it's a substance of things hoped for. It's an evidence of things not seen. And therefore, faith rests on a foundation. And then there are others that think faith is a great mystery. It's a sort of a sixth sense that if you have some intuition into the spiritual realm. It's a sort of an open sesame to a new world. It's like belonging to a secret order. You must get initiated. And there's some mystical works that God will accept in lieu of good works, just so you believe hard enough. Well, friends, the demons do a pretty good job of believing. They're not saved. And by the way, this type of faith ministers today to that area. We have a lot of cults and isms today that are demonic and are run by demons. Faith for these people becomes sort of a fetish. It's sort of a good luck charm that you hang around your neck and carry along with you. But faith is not that. Spurgeon put it like this, it's not thy hold on Christ that saves thee. It's Christ. It's not thy joy in Christ that saves thee. It's Christ. It's not even thy faith in Christ that saves thee, though that be the instrument. It is Christ's blood and merit. That's what saves you, friend. And faith just lays hold of it. That's all. Faith is not something, therefore, that is mysterious at all. It is that which looks to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, faith is not something that's added to good works, like character. Some folk in our churches today treat it like a salad with a dressing on it. Faith is the salad dressing. You have a salad and you put French dressing on it. You put blue cheese on it. You put an Italian dressing on it. And a great many people today, they just add good works. Well, my friend, that's not faith at all. Now he says here two things. 
Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And I like very much what Dr. J. Oswald Sanders of the old China Inland Mission has written. He says, faith enables the believing soul to treat the future as present and the invisible as seen. Well, that's good. But now let's look here at the scriptural definition. Faith is the substance. It's the substance. Now, what are we talking about here when we say substance? Well, the word in the Greek is hypostasis. It actually is a scientific term, and it's the opposite from hypothesis, that is, an apothesis, a theory. It is that which rests upon facts, by the way. What is a hypostasis? Well, it's a substance. In chemistry, it would be the chemical that settles at the bottom of the test tube after you've made an experiment. They would give me in chemistry when I was in college a test tube, and then they'd ask me to, you know, to find out what was in it. They gave every student in class a test tube like that, you know. I always felt that if they didn't know, why give it to me? But I took that, and I would take some of it, and I'd put a chemical with it, another chemical, and I'd put it on the Bunsen burner, and I nearly blew up the laboratory one day experimenting because it had something in it. He shouldn't have given it to me, by the way. And the janitor that swept out that laboratory, I was back at the college about five years after that. He says, you know, Dr. McGee, I still sweep up little pieces of that big glass Florentine bottle that you were experimenting with. Well, I was trying to collect gas. I thought it was some kind of a gas. And it was. Blew up the laboratory, by the way. Fortunately, why, well, just put glass in my vest. <laughs> I didn't bend down. If it had, it would have got my eyes, I'm sure. Well, that that's in the bottom of that test tube, that's the substance. That's what you were looking for. That is the reality. Now, that is what faith is. Faith is a substance. Dr. A.T. Robertson translated it like this. It's the title deed. Now, what is the title deed? What is the substance? It's the Word of God, my friend. Now, if your faith does not rest upon the Word of God, it's not Bible faith at all. It has to rest upon what God says. And actually, it means to believe God. Now, let me come back to that test tube that I talked about. I never did too well with it. But finally, after I worked at that thing for over two weeks, I went to the professor and I said, I think this is what it is. You see this in the bottom? I've tested it. And I said, I think it's this kind of a powder. And he said, you're right. That's what it is. Well, I had a substance. I had something there. You see, now, I wasn't sure, I'll be honest with you, but he was, because he knew more chemistry than I did. And he had been through that experiment before. Now, my friend, the question is, whether you believe God or not, don't come up with this 
idea that you've got intellectual problems because that won't work. The thing that keeps men from the Word of God is sin. It's sin in your life that's keeping you from coming to God, you see. It's the heart that needs to believe. It's the heart that believeth unto righteousness. You see, when you're ready to give up your sin, the Holy Spirit will make real to you the Word of God. And that's one reason a very fine man who heads up a very wonderful organization in this country sent me a book. And I'm sure he sent it out to a group of ministers that he wanted their evaluation of the book. Now, it's a very fine book, by the way, but it's in the realm of apologetics, proving that the Bible is the Word of God. Now, it's one of the best I've seen. And I wrote him and told him that I found that it was that. But I said very candidly, I've come to the place in my ministry where a book like that is of no value to me. And you know why? Because I already believe it's the Word of God. I've already been through all those little experiments, you see. I've taken the test tube, and I have put some on the Bunsen burner, and I have poured a chemical, hydrochloric acid, on some more of it. And I found out what it was. I have found out, and there is a man that has written me quite a letter, and he says, I'm dogmatic, and I ought not to be dogmatic. My friend, you listen to me now, I'm dogmatic. I know the Bible is the Word of God. You know how I know it? Because I put it in the test too. I've made the experience. And now faith is the substance of things hoped for. I know it's the Word of God. The Spirit of God has made it real to me. That's what Paul prayed for the Colossians. He says that you might come to the place, that you might know the will of God. Well, to know the will of God is to know the Word of God, that you might know the Word of God. And then he called it epigenosis. There were Gnostics in that day that professed to have super-knowledge. Paul says, I want you to have real super-knowledge. I want you to know that the Bible is the Word of God. Now, I believe the Holy Spirit will make that real to you. Now, don't misunderstand. I went through a period as a college student, where I almost gave up the ministry. In fact, I went to God in prayer because there was an unbelieving professor, and he was an ordained Presbyterian preacher. He was taking the rug out from and under me and taking it out fast because I've always admired a man who's an intellectual, whoever he is. And I admired that man. And I want to tell you, he was about to rob me of my faith. And then I met a man that had two degrees for every degree this professor had, and he put me back on the track. He showed me this an answer to those questions. And so I've got the answer for myself. may not convince you, but it certainly convinces me. And I've got a substance in the bottom of the test tube today. And don't tell me to make the experiment today. I don't need to make the experiment today. I know it's the Word of God. Therefore, it rests upon the Word of God. And my friend, the dogmatism is in this book here. And that's the reason he said that last verse, 39, 
But we are not of them who draw back under perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. There's not but two ways to go. Either you're going to go backwards or you're going to go forward. Because anything that is alive today can't stand still. You've either got to go one way or the other. And out yonder in the forest, there is deterioration taking place and there is regression, but there's also growth and development taking place. And there's nothing out there that's alive that's standing still. It just can't do that. It won't do that. Now, faith is a substance of things hoped for. And that's scientific, by the way. Now, the second thing, it's the evidence of things not seen. Now, we have another word here. And the word for evidence is a lenkos. It means to convict. When I was studying classical Greek in college, I looked this word up in the trial of Socrates. And it was used, I think, 23 times in Plato's account of it. Alenkos, a legal term, by the way. And this is something you can take into court and prove it. And this is something today that the entire business world rests upon. Business today is transacted by faith. I have a credit card. In fact, I have a stack of them. And I drive into a filling station and the man the card. And you know he's got to have a lot of faith to take my card. He takes it. He believes that the oil company will pay him. And he believes that I'm the owner of the car. I say he has a lot of faith. And he believes that I'm going to pay it in the long run. And the interesting thing, the oil company thinks I'm going to pay it. In fact, they know I'm going to pay it because they'll take the card away from me. But the thing is, it's faith all the way through. A man that writes out a check and will accept a check. That man is moving by faith, my friend. All right? This is Alenkos. It's evidence. Evidence that is accepted in a court of law. You see, faith is not a leap in the dark. Faith is not a hope so. Faith is substance and evidence. Substance for a scientific mind. Evidence for the legal mind. If you really want to believe, you can believe. And you can believe a lot of foolish things also. But God doesn't want you to do that. God wants it to rest upon the Word of God. Now, he moves on from there and he says, For by it, that is, by faith, the elders obtained a good report. Now, who in the world are the elders? Well, the elders could be one of three different groups. The first group, it could be just a group of old people, by the way. And it could be an office that was in the New Testament. You remember Paul talked to young Titus that he was to appoint elders. That's one of the offices. And it could refer to that. Or it could refer to the Old Testament saints. We had that at the beginning. In verse 1 of Hebrews, it says that God spoke in time past unto the fathers, our elders. Now, I think that it would be that. For by such faith as this, the Fathers received witness, you see. They believed God, 
these Old Testament worthies did. And for them, it was not a leap in the dark. It was not a hope so. It rested upon evidence, by the way. Noah built an ark, as we're going to see, did it by faith. Well, what kind of faith? Just some dream he had? No. God gave him an abundance of evidence. He walked with God for many years. You see, the problem with many of us today is that when the crisis comes to us, and we ought to be able to rest in God and lay hold of him, we haven't been doing it. It's such a new experience that it's very difficult for us to. You see, when you trust God when the sun is shining, it's easier to trust him on the day when there's dark, lowering clouds in the sky and you're in the storm of life. But the elders, they obtained a good report. How? Because they were such wonderful people. No, they believed God. Abraham, I think he's a wonderful man. I think probably Abraham had more going for him than probably the best Christian today. He was an outstanding individual. Even the world would have counted him an outstanding man. But, you know, we are told that by faith that Abraham believed God, and that Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for what righteousness? Not his good works, but he believed God. The elders obtained a good report. How did they do it? They did it by faith. And God wants us today, not only saved by faith, walk by faith. Christ died down here to save us. We look back in faith to him. We walk today by faith. We look up to him, the living Christ today. That gets right down where the rubber meets the road, you see. That's for right now. That's for today. That's for, well, are you going to go shopping? You're going to go to work? You're going to go to school? Go into some social engagement? Well, then go by faith. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ. We walk by faith and not by sight. That's the way God wants us to walk today. Now, we come to the third verse here. And we read here, Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Now, there are two explanations for the origin of this universe. One is speculation, and the other is revelation. By faith, you accept revelation. And friends, by faith, you will accept speculation. And speculation has many theories. Many of them have been ditched. Right now, it's evolution. But it's going out of style today, I'm told. But it's the best that they can hold on, but it's speculation. And you sure have to have a lot of faith to go along with it. Now, he says here, through faith we understand that the worlds were framed. Actually, the ages were set up by the Word of God. And the Word of God, we've already been told, is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. The Word of God is more powerful than an atom bomb or a hydrogen bomb. Someone has said that atom bombs come in three sizes, big and bigger 
And then where is everybody? Well, the Word of God is more potent than that, my friend, because the Word of God has the power to transform life. And when you and I come to the Word of God, we find out that either you accept God's statement concerning the origin. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the revelation. Either you believe God or you go by speculation. Now, don't tell me today that evolution is scientific. It's not. If it were, then all the scientists would be in agreement. They're not in agreement. And today, many of the outstanding scientists are beginning to let go this worship of evolution. They see so many fallacies in it, and they're moving away from it. Now, you either believe God, and that's revelation, or you believe speculation. You see, faith must be anchored in something. I heard this whimsical story about the guard that was guide in a museum, and he was taking a group of people around, and they came to a reconstructed dinosaur, you know, one bone, and then they make up the rest of them, and there it was, a great big dinosaur. And so this guide says, this dinosaur is two million and six years old. Of course, the crowd looked at him in amazement, and one extrovert in the crowd, this fellow said, what do you mean, two million and six years old? Where do you get the sick? Well, he says, when I came to work here six years ago, it was two million years old. Now it's two million and six years old. Well, friends, that shows how utterly ridiculous all this dating that goes back millions of years can really become. Now, faith means you've got a solid basis for the origin of the universe. I won't have to change my theory. It's been in operation a long time. God created the heavens and the earth. Now, I want to give a quotation now from Dr. G. Camel Morgan that's fitting as we come to these individuals. He says, Life is to be mastered by faith and not by doubt. It is to be forevermore illuminated by hope and not darkened by despair. And in its activity, love is to be practiced in fellowship. We're going to see that illustrated now as we come. Faith is not some jewel that you put in a case like a diamond and look at it. That's not the way it's given to us here. That's the reason I don't want to call it a catalog of heroes of faith. These are men and women that got right down to the nitty-gritty alive, and faith was operative in their lives. And faith is not something, therefore, that you put in a case. Faith rests upon the Word of God. Now, we come to individuals, and you have given here three individuals who lived before the flood. And one even lived through it and on this side of it. You have, first of all, Abel. In Abel, you have the way of faith. 
and then Enoch, and you have the walk of faith, and then in Noah, you have the witness of faith. Now, these are the three men that lived before the flood, and faith was in operation at that time. These men walked by faith, lived by faith, saved by faith. Now, with Abel, God put down once and for all the fact that men are going to approach him only on one basis, by faith, and that salvation will be by faith in Christ. Not only did Abraham see Christ's day and rejoice, but so did Abel. We're told here in verse 4, and I'm going to read it now, by faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead, yet speaketh. All right? Now, I want to go back to the book of Genesis, to the story of these two boys. And I want us to see just what it was that Abel had that Cain didn't have. And what was the difference between these two boys? So, let's go back to the fourth chapter of the book of Genesis. And I read now, "...and Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain, and said, I've gotten a man from the Lord." Well, what she really said was, "...I have gotten the man from the Lord." What man are we talking about? God made clear to Eve that there would be coming one in her line, the seed of the woman. I'll put enmity between thee and the woman, speaking to Satan, and between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head. And who's it? Christ shall bruise thy head, thou shall bruise his heel. Now we have that given to us, but Adam and Eve, did not know this struggle with sin was going to last so long. They thought their first son would be the man that was coming, but he wasn't. Cain was not the Savior. He was a murderer. Verse 2, And she again bare his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Probably we ought to stop here and make a comparison of these two boys because there's a whole Grand Canyon between these two. They're antipodes apart. And yet they were brothers, the sons of Adam and Eve. Now, what was the difference between the two? The late Dr. Harry Rimmer thought they were twins. Well, I don't think of them as twins, but I think they were more alike than twins could be. For instance, you could have a family today that that's born into the family, two boys, and one of the boys, he is a fine, upstanding boy. He goes through school, makes straight A's, then to college, and then he becomes a professional man, a doctor maybe. And the other boy, though, he doesn't do well in school, drops out of school, He's a dropout, and he begins to drink and to smoke pot, and he's that type of a boy. 
So what's the explanation? Two boys in the same family. And the psychologist comes along. Now he says, according to the Mendelian theory, what you have here is one boy, this upstanding boy, he takes after an aunt on the mother's side. And that's the reason that he's such a fine, upstanding boy. But the other boy takes after an uncle on the father's side. And that's the reason he's drinking, because the father had a drinking uncle. And they explain it that way. But you can't use that method about Cain and Abel. Who was the aunt and the uncle of Cain and Abel? They didn't have something that many of us have, aunts and uncles. They didn't have any aunts. They didn't have any uncle. The fact of the matter is they didn't have any grandparents. And you can't use heredity for these two boys. I think they were alike as two peas. They just looked alike, acted alike in many ways. But they were different, friends, very much different. And you can't use that method of environment. Some use that as making the difference. And a great many people think that is the real difference among men is environment. If you just make it all right, everything will be fine. Because they feel today that if they could get rid of the slums and put people in nice homes, they'd be nice. But it doesn't always work that way. Here, you find out that these two boys, they had the same environment. I can't think of a home that was the same for both boys as the home of Cain and Abel. Now, notice what happens here. We have these two boys, and we're told that now they come to God. And in process of time, actually it means at the end of days, I think of the Sabbath day, they belong to the first creation, the old creation. And in process of time, or at the end of days, they came at a specified time that Cain brought and the word brought has in it the thought of to an appointed place of the fruit of the ground and offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought of the firstling of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. Now, what is the difference between the two offerings then? Didn't both of them come in obedience to God? No, they did not. You see, God had revealed to them that they were to bring a sacrifice, a little lamb. And that little lamb pointed to Christ. Somebody says, but Genesis doesn't say that. No, it doesn't say that. But the verse I read in the 11th chapter of Hebrews does say it. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. How could he? Well, he came by faith. What is faith? Let's look at it again. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. This man had a revelation from God. So did Cain. They're both in the same family. But Cain ignored it, and he brought what he wanted to bring, the fruit of the ground. He had done it, 
In other words, here's the first man who brought his works to God. A lot of people are still coming the same way, and they come by works. They do this and they do that. This man is bringing what he raised. But this other man brings a lamb and slays it. And had you been there and said to him, Brother Abel, why are you bringing a lamb? He'd said God commanded it. We'd have said to him, do you think the little lamb takes away your sin? And he would have said, of course not. Well, then why do you blame it? Well, he said, I just told you. God commanded us to bring it. What do you understand? Well, he says, God said to my mother that there's one coming in her line that's going to be a savior. And that one is the one this little lamb's pointing to. And I'm coming by faith, looking to the time when a deliverer and a savior will come. So here at the very beginning, God made the way open to himself clear that without shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins, that we come to God on one basis, that we're sinners, and that the penalty for our sin must be paid. And that's the reason the little lamb must be slain. The little lamb can't take away. It looks in faith to the coming of Christ, who is the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. So that Abel's offering points to Christ. And he came by faith. This is the way of salvation that's made clear to us. At the very beginning, God got this straightened out early, friends. And today, though a man be a stranger and a wayfaring man and a fool, he need not err therein. God's made it very clear that Christ is the way to himself and that God gave him to die for our sins. And that makes this very important, you see. Now, we move on down in this 11th chapter of Hebrews to the next man. Let's look at Enoch, and in him you see the walk of faith. When you come to God through Christ the way, then you are to walk. And it's the walk of the believer that becomes important. By faith, Enoch, we're told, was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him, for before his translation he had this testimony that he pleased God. Now, Enoch pleased God, but how did he do it? By faith. And the writer here goes on to say, but without faith it's impossible to please him. Now, friends, unless you're willing to come God's way and believe him, you couldn't possibly please God. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. In this epistle, there's a great deal said about reward. And the reason for that is the emphasis here is upon the Christian lie in light of the fact that we have a living Savior up there today who's for us. And there's a reward for living the Christian life. But salvation is not a reward. It's a free gift. You work for your reward, but not for salvation. That comes by faith. 
But the walk of the Christian is also by faith. And we are told that Enoch walked with God. And he was not because God took him. That means that we're going to have to go back to Genesis and pick up the story of Enoch there. You take the fifth chapter of Genesis, and that's where you find Enoch mentioned the first time. And it's a very sad chapter. We're told, in Adam all die. Well, it sure started out that way. We are told this is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day that God created man in the likeness of God made he him. That's Genesis 5, 1. And then we're told that Adam lived so long he begat a son. And here at Seth is mentioned, we follow that line. And then Adam died. And then Seth, he lived and begat a son. And he died. All died. And Adam all died. And that's the way it's been going on now for a long, long time. But there's one exception. And when you get to verse 21, you read, And Enoch lived sixty and five years, and he begat Methuselah. Well, we're going to talk a little about Methuselah, his son, but we're going to see Enoch. And in that, we'll see the walk of faith. Now, let's go back and look at the story of this man, Enoch. And we saw in this fifth chapter of the book of Genesis, just like walking through a cemetery and reading what's on the tombstones. Only thing is, so-and-so was born, he lived and begat a son, and he died. becomes really monotonous. And it's a rather sad story of mankind today. It's the same picture in this present hour in which we live. Things haven't changed, friends. There may be an evolution in another area, but there's certainly been none in this area. Man still dies. Oh, I know the lifespan has been extended a few years, but what's a few years when you put it down by a thousand or eternity? Well, when we get to this fifth chapter of Genesis... We read in verse 19, And Jared lived after he begat Enoch 800 years. He begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. That's true of all of them up to this point. And then after Enoch, they all died. Even Methuselah, we're told, died. But this man Enoch didn't die at all. It says, And Enoch lived sixty and five years, and he begat Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah three hundred years, and he begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were three hundred sixty and five years, And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Now, that's the story of Enoch. Obviously, in the fifth chapter, we are following a very definite line. We're following a certain genealogy, because we find that all of these begat sons and daughters, but we're not told anything about them. One particular son is lifted out. Now, Jared had a boy by the name of Enoch. 
Now we're told Enoch lived 65 years. He begat a man by the name of Methuselah. Now he had other children, but this firstborn apparently was Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah. I don't know what he did before he begat Methuselah, but I assume he did not walk with God. But one day he went into the nursery and looked down in a crib, and there's a little fella, and he's just kicking as much as you please, and his name was Methuselah. Now, we always think of Methuselah being an old man who walked on his beard and got in his way. But actually, he was a little baby at one time. And this man, Enoch, looked down, and when he saw this little baby, it changed his life. He began to walk with God. I do not know what it was before. It could have been careless. It could have been a life that was lived in indifference and maybe an open sin. I do not know. The record doesn't say. It just says that he walked with God after he begat Methuselah. But he looked down and saw that little fellow, and he recognized his responsibility. Now, I read for you a letter that influenced a family to write to me, and they even called attention to the fact a little child shall lead you. Well, if the presence of a baby in the home won't change your lifestyle, friends. Nothing else will. The preacher won't be able to say very much, and I'm sure that what I have to say would not affect you at all. But God gave you that little fella, and these little ones have a way of speaking for God, and they don't say a word. They come out of the everywhere into the here, and they seem so fresh and Somehow or another, they bring a message from God, and certainly Methuselah did for this man Enoch and changed his lifestyle, and he had other children. But this man Enoch didn't die. It says he walked with God, and he was not for God took him. And now you have the walk of faith. And when we get back now to the 11th chapter of Hebrews, we read, by faith, Enoch was translated, that he should not see death. Before his translation, he had this testimony. He pleased God. His walk pleased God. Because he walked by faith, not by rules and regulations, but he walked in a manner to please God. He believed in God, and he walked in a manner that pleased him. And then... God took him. He didn't die. He was translated. This is the first rapture that's in the Bible. Only one man was raptured. He was removed from this earth scene and was taken away. Now, you're going to have quite a picture here, by the way. It has, I think, a spiritual message. There are those that believe the church will go through the great tribulation, and they use Noah as an example. Now, Noah represents not the church, but he represents those that are in the world that are going to be saved during the Great Tribulation, and God's going to keep them. You say, who are they? Well, I can identify them. 144,000 of the nation Israel, and then a great company of Gentiles. 
They're not in the church. We're told that before the winds of the great tribulation began to blow across the earth and the four horsemen of the apocalypse began to ride, that 144,000 out of the nation Israel were sealed. And then another company, and that is a great company of Gentiles. And they are represented by Noah. God can keep you in the great tribulation, but it's not a question of whether God can keep the church. He could. The question is, does he? What does he say? Well, he says that he's going to remove the believers. He told the church in Philadelphia, I'm going to keep you from that hour that's coming on the earth. It's going to try the whole earth. Well, what hour is going to try the earth? The only one mentioned in Scripture is the great tribulation period. There's none other mention. So apparently this great company, uh, both Jew and Gentile, are to be kept. Noah represents them. But you see, these folk that use Noah as an example of the church, they forget about Enoch. Enoch didn't go through the flood. He was translated. He was not in the ark. God could have put him in the ark, but he didn't. He could have kept him during the flood, but he didn't do that. He removed him. And that's what he's going to do with the church. And so Enoch represents the church. And he was translated. I like that word, translation, because it means you take something out of one language and you put it in another. I listened to the tape of our broadcast in South America in Spanish. And I listened to the introduction, the song, How Firm a Foundations in Spanish. And believe me, they got a quartet down there that really does a fine job singing it. I can't understand a word they're saying, but then there's the announcer comes on. He has a marvelous voice. And then the man giving my messages, he's reading them, but you'd never know it. And he's doing an excellent job. Someone said, the manager of the station wrote down, said, we have everything except your Texas accent. Well, I like the way he did it. And that was a translation. It was taken out of one language, put in another language for South America. Well, may I say to you that Enoch was translated out of one sphere of life and translated into another. God took him. And the best way I know to describe it is to describe it as a little girl did that came home from Sunday school. And a mother said to us, said, what did the teacher tell you about today in Sunday school? And the little girl said she told us all about this man Enoch. And, and you can see that was not a modern Sunday school because the kids weren't playing and building something and listening to a little story about little Sam or little somebody else on the good neighbor policy. This was a good old-fashioned Sunday school that taught the Bible. And so the little girl said that all about Enoch. And the mother says, well, what about Enoch? And she told it this way. And friends, I couldn't tell it any better than this way that the little girl said. She said that Enoch lived a long time ago and God would come by every afternoon and say to Enoch, 
Enoch, would you like to take a walk with me? And Enoch said, yes, he'd like to take a walk with God. And so every day, God would come by Enoch's house, and Enoch would go walking with God. And said, one day, God came by and said, Enoch said, uh, let's take a long walk today. I want to talk to you. And so they started out. Enoch got his coat and everything and eating his lunch, and they started walking, and they walked, and they walked, and walked. And finally, it got late, and Enoch said, My, it's getting late, and we're long ways from my home, said, Maybe we better start back. And God says, Enoch, you're closer to my home than you are to your home, so you come on, go home with me. And so Enoch went home with God. Now, friends, I don't know how to say it any better than that. And that's going to happen one day with the church. Church walking with God like Enoch did. And one day, one day God's going to take us home. The Lord Jesus is coming. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. We that are alive caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Friends, that's the way the little girl told it, and that's the way I think it is. Now, I want to drop down to verse 7, because we have now the third and last individual who walked by faith and lived by faith and came by faith to God before the flood. These were antediluvians, we call them. And it was Noah himself. Verse 7 now, and I'm reading, By faith Noah, being warned of God, of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world, and he became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. Now, you have in Noah the witness of faith. Abel was the way of faith. Enoch the walk of faith. Now you have the witness of faith. And this is Noah. You see, we're told here he saved his house. Now, many of us have been accustomed to say that Noah preached 120 years and never made a convert. Actually, that's not quite accurate. He sure did win his family. He led every member of his family to the Lord, and that was really something. I think probably, again, we better go back to Genesis and look at this one for just a moment. We are told that in verse 5 of chapter 6 of Genesis, God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil and that continually. This is a sad commentary on mankind. Man surely got away from God in a hurry after he got out of the Garden of Eden. But we're told that there was one man left. Verse 9, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generation. Now, that means that he was a nice fellow and paid his debts and did a lot of nice things. No, it says here, also, and Noah walked with God. But how did he walk with God? 
Well, the writer to the Hebrews tells us, by faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with prayer, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, and so on. Now, this man, Noah, believed God, for God told him that he was going to destroy the earth with a flood. There's some that believe that up to this point it hadn't even rained, and that's probably true. And way up on dry ground, away from even the Euphrates River, why, this man Noah began to build a boat. In fact, it was way up near Mount Ararat. And so he began to build a boat because God said there's going to be a flood, and God gave him the instructions for it. And it wasn't that clumsy-looking thing that you were given a picture of in Sunday school. I was when I was a little boy, and my thought was I sure would hate to have been in that boat. I think it was a very modern-looking equipment, by the way. The size of it and the construction of it and the way in which it was built, it would conform to modern shipbuilding. The length of it, we're told, was 300 cubits, breadth of it 50 cubits, the height of it 30 cubits. I'm told that today's shipbuilding conforms largely to this pattern. It didn't have one little window in the side. It says, A window shalt thou make in the ark, and a cubit shalt thou finish it above, and the door of the ark shalt thou set in the side thereof with lower, second, and third stories shalt thou make it. Now, the window went all the way around the top, and the roof came down over it, of course, but there was that open space so that there was plenty of open space. And there were three decks that it had. 300 cubits would mean 450 feet long. It reveals the fact that these men were good builders in that day, shipbuilders, as well as building palaces and that type of thing, forts. And we know today that it was possible for this type of a construction in that day. It would be something they'd be familiar with. And this man began to do what I'm sure the population in that day considered a very foolish thing. I'm of the opinion the Gray Lines ran a tour out to where he was building the boat, and I'm sure it was a popular one. I've always wondered what it was that brought the three boys, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, the three sons of Noah, back home. These boys, I'm sure, had moved away and started their own business, down in Babel, I suppose Ham was a contractor, probably a very successful builder himself. And one day he's meeting with the builders' convention, construction, you know, contractors' convention. The man there began to tell about the trip that he'd made up in the North Country and that the man up there was building a boat and how ridiculous it was. And everybody agreed, including Ham. But Ham all of a sudden knew his dad lived up there, and he'd heard some things, and he asked the contractor the question. He said, by the way, did you get the name of the man? He said, yes. said, what was his name? said, his name was Noah. And I think Ham turned white when he heard that. And he stood up, and he said, listen, man. He said, that's my father that's building that boat. Now, he said, I agree with you, it's foolish. And I laughed as you laughed. 
but said, you don't know my dad. said, my dad walked in the fear of God, the living God. I've gotten away from it. But he says, if my dad says a flood's coming and that God has caused him to give out a message, a warning, he said, you can just put it down and a flood's coming. And God spoke to him because I was brought up in that home. And I know this, that I might cut short corners, but my dad wouldn't. My dad never told a lie. My dad lived for God. And if you don't mind, I'm going to get me a saw and a hammer, and I'm going up there and help him build. I think that Shem and Japheth had a similar experience, and they heard about it, and they went back to help their dad. Why? Because this man had a witness. This man, Noah, was a real witness for God. Friends, may I say this to you very candidly? The most important thing that you can do is to witness to your own family and not by everlastingly giving them the gospel, but by living it before them and letting them see that you have a reality in your life. Always think of the story that Gypsy Smith told years ago. He's holding meetings in Dallas. And a lady came up to him and said to him, said, Gypsy, I've been called to preach. And he felt about women preachers about like I do. And he said to her, said, by the way, you married? She said, yes. Says, how many children do you have? She said, I have five. He said, isn't that wonderful? Said, God's called you to preach, and he's already given you a congregation. My friend, may I say to you, whether you're even a preacher or not, whoever you are, if you're a child of God and you've got a family, That's your congregation. God gave you that congregation. And Noah won his. Now, nobody accepted the Lord outside. Nobody believed him outside, but his family did. They knew him. And we're told that he saved his whole household. That's what the writer here says, that he saved his household. And that's a wonderful thing, that He was able to do that. He prepared an ark for the saving of his house. Why? By his witness. May I say to you, you have the way of faith, the walk of faith, and the witness of faith in these three antediluvians. Now we come to the man that's known as the man of faith. That's the way he's identified in the Word of God. It's Abraham. And he is the supreme illustration in the epistle to the Romans, also in the epistle to the Galatians and other gospel writers refer to Abraham. Even the Lord Jesus said, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. Now, I want us to read this section to get it before us. You follow us in your Bible. I'm beginning reading now in Hebrews 11, verse 8. And in Abraham, we have the worship of faith. Will you listen? By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out not knowing whither he went. Now, you and I have seen before in this epistle that The worship of God leads to obedience to God. 
It leads to work for God. It leads to doing the thing God wants you to do. And you don't have to spend time browbeating people and telling them they should get busy for God, because that's not the proper motive. If they can come in and worship God and catch something of the glory of the person of Christ, then I believe that you can depend on them from then on to work for God, to obey Him. And actually, the important word in this entire section, I think, in verse 8 here, it's obeyed, and worship leads to obedience. And if you'd go back to the 12th chapter of Genesis, where the story of Abraham begins, you find that he came out of Ur of the Chaldees, and he moved along, and he delayed in Haran, lost a great deal of time. But finally, he appeared in the land, and when he appeared in the land... God appeared to him. And in verse 7 of Genesis 12, it reads, And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. Now, this man, everywhere he went, he built an altar. When he came into the land at Shechem, he built an altar. When he went down to the plains of Morah, down near Hebron, he there built an altar unto the Lord. In fact, everywhere Abraham went, he built an altar to God. In that land today, we were there, as many of you know. And the thing that impressed me more than anything else was the number of buildings that Herod put up. He not only built the temple which was really never completed there in Jerusalem. But he built palaces and forts and actually cities all over that land. And you see evidences of it. But actually, no worship of God on his part. But Abraham, all he did was put up an altar, and he worshiped God. And then that led to obedience of God. Why? Because he worshiped God by faith. And then he obeyed God, and that was by faith. And we're told now in verse 9, By faith he, that is Abraham, sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who had promised. You see, when God told Sarah, 90 years old, she's to have a child, well, she laughed because it was ridiculous. In fact, it was utterly preposterous, and she couldn't accept it, but God gave her strength power to believe him. And many of us need that. You remember that poor man that brought that demon-possessed boy to the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus said, I can help him if you believe. And the man says, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. The man recognized he had a weak faith. And the Lord Jesus must have given him the faith because he healed the boy. Sarah had a child, had a 
a little boy named Isaac. And why? Well, God gave her the strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child. And she was past age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore sprang there even a one, and him as good as dead, so many as the stars of the sky in multitude, and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. Now, this is what happened, and it all took place by faith. But now do you want to know something? Abraham and Sarah never saw the fulfillment of God's promise to them. Verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Now, that's what faith, I think, will do for any child of God down here, is just to let you know that you're a pilgrim and stranger down here on this earth. And that, my friend, is what all of us here are. We're just strangers down here. Now he moves on, verse 14, "...for they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country." Faith looks out yonder to the future. And the child of God today is looking to the future. Very frankly, and I'm not in the employ of the Chamber of Commerce, but I love Southern California. I've lived here long, and I've lived any place in my life since 1940. And I love it. In spite of the smog and the traffic and all these people that followed us out here, I wish we could have put up a wall around California after we got here, not before, and could have had this wonderful place to ourselves. All of us that have come out, we certainly haven't helped the place, but I still prefer it. But I sat out in my backyard. I have a ranch here in California, and it's not what you'd call a big ranch. It's 72 feet wide. goes back about 123 or 128. I'm not sure about that. But I have it well stocked. I have my house right in the middle of it. But I have orange trees, avocado trees, tangerine trees, nectarine trees. I have guava bushes. I have plums. I have apricots. I have lemons. So you can see I'm really a rancher. And I sat out there the other day, and I just looked up and thanked the Lord that he gave me that place. And he did. First place I ever owned and paid for it. It's the only place I ever really owned. And I thank God for it. But I told him, I said, don't let me get in love with this place, and I won't want to leave it. Go to a better place. We're strangers and pilgrims, all of us down here. Why? Because we're walking today by faith, looking to a better place. We read verse 14, For they that say such things, they declare plainly they seek a country, another one. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity of return. You can go back. All of us can turn around and go back and get satisfied with the things of this world. But the child of God, by faith, is going ever onward. Now, verse 16, But now they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly country. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. 